want to invite you to open your Bible to Revelation chapter 5 uh, in the Word of God. We have been making our way through the book of Revelation and working our way uh, sort of verse by verse, phrase by phrase, uh, through uh, this, uh, this book. And uh, so thankful for our study uh, of, this, um, uh, of this book. Uh, we've been in the book of Revelation for quite some time. Uh, we started with a uh, walkthrough of the entire book, about really eight to ten uh, messages on that some time ago. Uh, then we worked through Revelation 1, 2, and 3, and we paused for Christmas and did the journey to the cross, and then we picked up in Revelation 4 and 5. And uh, today, this is indeed one section tied uh, together. And you can't really study Revelation 4 without studying Revelation chapter 5. And so we've been studying 4 and 5 together collectively as a a unit. Uh, You will remember that John was on the Isle of Patmos when uh, there for the sake of the Gospel... Uh, doing hard labor, and he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And um, the Lord Jesus Christ revealed Himself to him in a marvelous way and, um, and, and commanded him, really, uh, according to Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, commanded him to write the things which you have seen, which is the uh, visual vision of Christ, the things which are, which are the letters to the churches in, in chapters 2 and chapter 3, and the things which will take place after these things. And uh, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, all the way through uh, Revelation chapter 20, uh, 19-20, is where these things that must take place after this uh, come uh, about. In Revelation chapter 4, we've already taken a look around the throne room of God. And we've considered this in light of all of the prepositions that we find in Revelation chapter 4. We looked at the one uh, 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 on the throne, and we looked at the ones around the throne. We looked at the ones in verse 5 upon uh, the throne. We looked in, excuse me, verse 4 upon the throne. In verse 5... Um, uh, before the throne and verse 6 around the throne and so we've really just kind of uh, gone with John into the throne room of God and uh, taken a look and taken his words and compared them with other passages of scripture and things along those lines and after all those things we saw that the one who was seated on the throne had a book or a scroll uh, in his hand and it was sitting upon his hand so he wasn't grasping or holding it it's not who has the power to come and take this from my hand. It's not anything like that at all. The one sitting on the throne has an open palm and a scroll, Biblion, set upon, sitting upon his hand that is sealed with seven seals. And the question comes, who is worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals? And John begins to think about that question and the worthiness. And there's a search in all of heaven and there is none found worthy. There was search in the earth and none were found worthy and even under the earth. Those who have died and gone before. And there are no Old Testament saints. There are no New Testament saints. There are no great Christians throughout history. There are no Puritans. There are no Reformers. There are no modern day Christians at all. There's no one coming who would be found worthy to take the scroll and to loose its seal. And we spent some time considering the weak of John. 
And he was weeping loud and weeping long and weeping uncontrollably. And a strong angel comes to him and says, Stop weeping. Don't you cry. For there is one who is worthy to take the book and to break its seals. And we looked last week in verse 5 that this one who is worthy, when John, he says, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion from the tribe of Judah. And we looked at that last week. And we looked in Genesis chapter 49, the very first time that the lion of, of Judah, L-I-O-N, lion of Judah, is mentioned. And then we also said that John turned and he looked for the lion because it says, Behold, look, see, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And John turns and doesn't see a, doesn't see a lion, but he sees a lamb. And not just any lamb standing, a lamb standing as if slain. As if slain. And so last week we spent time looking at the lion attributes of God and the fact that yes, He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And yes, He was meek and humble and lowly. And as a sheep before His shears, He stood silent as they hurled insults about Him. He remained silent through the cross. He was the Lamb of God on the cross who took away the sin of the world. But what we also saw, that there on the cross, He was a lion defeating death, hell, and the grave and, and taking back what rightly belongs to Him. And so we looked at the lion lamb aspects of Christ last, uh, last week. And today we press ahead in our study. And um, <clears throat> what we see in Revelation in chapter 5, uh, we pick up in verse 7. And this, this Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world in lion-like fashion, verse 7 says, He came and He took the book out of the right hand of Him who sat on the throne. And verse 8 says, And when He had taken the book, notice the response. <laughs> the one on the throne holds out His hands. The Lord Jesus Christ goes and He takes the, the book. And when He takes the book, the Bible says the four living creatures, and we spent time talking about those being the cherubim and tracing that through uh, Scripture. The cherubim, the four living creatures, and the 24 elders. We talked about the identity of the 24 elders being the, the, the church fell down before the Lamb. And look at this. Each one holding a harp and, a, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, Verse 9 says, and they sang a new song. So we're going to get to that today. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. 
And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and living creatures and elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And the praises go on and on and on and on. There's a crescendo of praise with each verse that they are singing. It's as if some people say when you sing praise to God, I don't like those 7-Eleven songs where you sing the same seven words 11 times. In this case, they would be singing seven words 11 times and then eight words 11 times and nine words. So with every verse, they're adding attributes and characteristics of God and they are putting together a picture throughout the singing of the book of Revelation of a full um, description of the attributes and characteristics and activities of God. And they just go on and on. He's worthy to receive power, verse 12 says, and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Verse 14 says, and the four living creatures kept saying over and over. It's like there was just no other response that was worthy and they just couldn't contain themselves. They just said, Amen and Amen and Amen and Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. As we look at this particular passage of Scripture today, we see the Lamb has taken the book or the scroll from the hand of God. Now at this point, he's not, He hasn't begun to open that and to break the seals. We know we get to Revelation chapter 6 that as He begins to open those, the judgments of God begin to come out and be poured upon the earth. This is before that scroll or that book that is completely sealed is open. He has it in His hands. He is the one who is found worthy. And when He is found worthy, He takes the book... Then notice what it says in verse 8, and realistically, we're probably going to only get through verse 8 and the first part of verse 9 today. He says this when he taken the book, the four living creatures, and again, those would be the cherubim, and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. They fell down before the Lamb, worshiping Him, now, now, you and I know that this is Jesus. We have identified Him as Jesus, but there are some people who say that Jesus is not God. And beloved, that is just not true. For if these elders had fell down and worshipped this one, this Lamb, and He were not God, He would be told to stop worshipping In fact, we see that later on in the book of Revelation in chapter 20 when John bows down to worship this creature, this angel. And he says, no, 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 get up. You don't worship me. You only worship God. There's no prohibits. There's nothing prohibiting or preventing or stopping the worship of this one because we know He is God. And we don't have to spend much time on that aspect today. But they fell down before the Lamb. And I want to deal with three things today. Three things. I want to deal with this harp, right? I want to harp on the harp a little bit, <laughs> if I could say it that way. 
Um, secondly, I want to deal with these golden bowls full of incense. And I want to mention the fact that they sang a new song. Let's deal first of all with the harp. Notice what it says here. It says that when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders, they fell down before land in lamb, each one holding a harp. In other words, as they prostrated themselves before the Lamb in worship, John noticed that each one of the 24 elders was holding a harp and these golden bowls of incense. Now, the grammatical structure of the Greek text seems to indicate that it was only the elders and not the living creatures who had these two things. Uh, in, in other words, the living creatures grammatically, they don't seem to be the one who has the harps in their hands. And I know that when you think particularly in the European uh, influence on angels, you see these puffy little creatures sitting on clouds, right? With, with a harp in their hands. But I want you to know here, in this particular passage of Scripture, which is in heaven, uh, grammatically, looking at the, the construction in the original language, it doesn't seem to be that the four living creatures are the ones who have the harp. It's as though the elders who are sitting in the thrones are the ones who have the harps. And this plays into the idea that, again, those who would bring satire... Uh, to the truthfulness of God's Word and uh, we'll, we'll take a verse or passage like this and they'll say, I would rather say stupid stuff. I would rather be partying in hell with all of my friends than playing a harp in heaven. Um, two things at least that are wrong uh, with that. Uh, number one is there's not going to be any partying in hell and you're not going to have buddies there. Um, and we've talked about the doctrine of hell extensively and um, that, that's not going to be the reality. And the reality also is in heaven is that the elders who do represent the church, they do have a harp, but that harp is not the only thing that they do, though it's mentioned several times in the book of Revelation. Harps were also mentioned throughout the Bible, and we need to kind of understand exactly the significance uh, of these harps. If you think about the Old Testament, the book of Revelation is not the first time we hear about the word, or we hear the word harp. A harp, of course, would be a stringed instrument. I know when you think about a harp today, you think about one who sits down and has this massive instrument in front of them and they play it and it just sounds so wonderful and, and beautiful and majestic. And, uh, uh, oh, I mean, I, just, I don't know about you, but I just love to hear uh, a harp being played by somebody who knows what they're doing. Now, if they don't know what they're doing, that's a different story. <laughs> but if they know what they're doing, it does. It just sounds so melodious and so glorious and so in awe. I don't want you to have the picture of that type of harp here. The picture of the harp that I want you to have here would be a stringed instrument that you would hold in your hands. And according to the, uh, uh, the customs and manners of, of the Bible, the harps would be more uh, almost like a guitar, particularly more like a banjo, uh, if you will. 
and um, and they would kind of hold it sideways and and play it that way, and it'd be much smaller than what you're thinking. It would also be called a lyre, which would be another L Y R E, not L I A R. That's a different sermon for a different time. But L Y R E would be a string uh, instrument as well. He's hardly clear. And in the Old Testament, initially they were uh, predominantly used in worship, in worship to God. Uh, we would see this in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 5, 1 Chronicles 15, 2 Chronicles, uh, all throughout the book of Psalms 33, 71, 92, 144, 150 um, would, would be used. They're also, it's also found here in, the, in Revelation as well. If you look over to Revelation chapter 14, um, verse 2, the Bible says, And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And look in Revelation chapter 15, verse 2, the Bible says, And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God, and they sang the song of Moses. So harps were frequently used in connection with the worship of God. In fact, even when the children of Israel were in Jerusalem, uh, even when they were in obedience to God, and Jeremiah was warning them time and time again to repent and return, they would still enter into the temple, and they would bring their harps with them, and, and they would offer worship to God in, in, in such a, a wonderful, melodious tone uh, with the harps. You can imagine, even as Jason mentioned, the, the myriad of, of voices, you can imagine the myriad of harps uh, singing uh, and, and, and ringing praise uh, to God. It's interesting that the psalmist notes that when they were ultimately um, uh, judged and carried off into Babylonian captivity, that the Babylonians uh, took those who came with them and, and told them time and time again to play for us on the harps, the songs of Jerusalem. They, they wanted to hear it, but the psalmist also said that they took their harps and hung them up. In other words, when they were worshiping and praising God and they were using them in a, in a time of worship, they would have the harps and do that. But now they were under judgment. Now they were, they were being carried off into exile, into Babylonian captivity. There was not much within their hearts that wanted to praise and worship God because they were under the judgment of God. And rather than having their harps with them that they could render out songs of praise to God, they simply hung them up. But harps also are closely linked to prophecy. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 5, Samuel said to Saul, After you will come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is, and it shall be as soon as you have come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high places with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, and they will be prophesying. So in other words, when the prophets came, harps would oftentimes be associated with the prophecies that they were uh, delivering. Similarly, when about to prophesy, Elisha said, Now bring me a harpist. And while the harpist was playing, uh, 
the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha. And we see this in 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 15. If you'd look with me, if you would, if you want to go, um, look in 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles chapter 25. A fascinating uh, verse that kind of shows you how, how these uh, were used. Uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 25 records that David and the commanders of the army set apart for the service some of the sons of Asaph and Hermon and Jeduthun who were to prophesy. And notice what it says in verse 3 and 6. They were to prophesy with lyres, harps, and cymbals. So the idea is that the harps held by the elders probably had even more to do symbolically with prophesying as it did worship. As it did worship. The harps held by the elders probably symbolized all of prophecy which culminates in the momentous events about to take place. In other words, they were there not only for the purpose of worship as, as found, but they were there saying, you know, um, all the prophecies that the prophets have been prophesying about for all of these centuries, and people have heard, and people have given up, and they've stopped listening, and they said they aren't going to come true, and they've said all of these other things. And you know, here at Doctor Church, we say it's not that they haven't come true; it's that they haven't come true yes. yet. The harp here seems to symbolize and indicate that all the prophecies of all that Scripture has to say is about to be fulfilled, about to come true, and the reality of those things are about to happen. And you and I know that the book of Revelation continues to unfold the plan and the purpose of God in the redemption of His people and the restoration of heaven and earth. When you think about the harp, don't just think about the instrument of worship and praise, but think about an instrument associated with prophecy as well. And here in Revelation chapter 5, before that scroll is opened, before those seals are broken, and before the judgment of God is poured out upon the earth, here are the elders, and they're there, and they're, they have their harps with them holding a harp. Again, think about the picture. The people the, the people of Israel are in Jerusalem. They're worshiping God. And then there's a season where because of their own re rebellion and because of the sin and the brokenness and strife of their world, they hang the harps up. And when it comes time to worship God again, a new season to rejoice and praise and give adoration, they pick up those harps and are about to use them in the worship of Almighty God. When the prophecies are given, the harps are played. And then for a long, long season of the world being dark and broken and all of these things, and, and really without hope apart from the Gospel of Christ, there's not much reason to play those harps. But there, in the book of Revelation, as those prophecies begin to come, apass, come to pass, and as God begins to bring all things together in culmination, it is only fitting and right that the harps be pulled out again and brought into 
the worship, uh, in the fulfillment of the prophecies that are being fulfilled here at the end of time in the book of the Revelation. The harps. So if the elders represents the church, in this vision the elders have these harps, Will you be playing harp in heaven? Well, the Bible says you'll be doing many things in heaven. Um, Even this particular passage says that you will be reigning with God in heaven. You will be serving God in heaven. You'll be singing and adoring. You will be reigning and ruling and leading. You'll be casting crowns down before Him. There are so many things you're going to be spending, even as Jason mentioned this morning, uh, thinking and meditating and growing and understanding the incomprehensibility of God. The fact that you can know Him, but you can never fully know Him. And husbands, you know exactly what that's like because you live with someone who is incomprehensible as well. And by the way, the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Uh, live with them in an understanding way that your prayers may not be hindered. I'm glad it doesn't say understand your wives. Uh, they are incomprehensible. And uh, wives, you you know that men are very comprehensible. Very comprehensible. We're simple. It's, you know, I don't know why y'all make it so difficult. But there's also a second thing that we see here in this particular passage of Scripture, and I think it's worth taking a look at. And that is that they had uh, holding in their hands bowls. My translation says full of incense. Bowls full of incense. Um, these bowls would be uh, bowls that would have a wide lip uh, on there. and There would be this uh, incense uh, inside of these uh, bowls. And um, they would be holding uh, these bowls. The elders were holding the, the bowls. It's interesting. Um, I did a uh, sort of a study to find out where the imperatives and where the participles are, the ing verbs. Uh, I do that a, a lot because I want to know where the Bible's commanding us to do something and where it's helping us to engage. The participles are the secondary verbs. A, a case in point, we've looked at this one before, is in the Great Commission where the Bible commands us to make disciples and then it tells us how to do that with participles. Going, baptizing, and teaching. So the main verb is make disciples and then the way that we do that are the participles. Here in this particular passage of Scripture, the participles, uh, uh, interesting, are holding, which you could see there. And of course in verse 9, singing, that's actually a historic present uh, tense. It's rendered in the past here just to help us understand what was going on. But, but the other, um, ing, is the word full of incense. So in other words, it would almost be literally holding the harp and bowls filling with incense. It's like this bowl that continues to fill uh, with incense. And I think that's a wonderful picture, particularly when we begin to understand what the incense is. And the incense, as we see here, we don't have to guess, it's defined for us. These bowls full of incense, which are, look at this, the prayers... Of the saints. The prayers that the saints pray. Now, we have to look at a couple of things. Who in the world are the saints? 
Are we talking about St. John, St. Peter, St. whoever the Catholics have deemed and determined as saint? No, absolutely not. When the Bible refers to saints, in a nutshell, every person who is born again of God, who is regenerated, who is redeemed, is a saint. Is a saint. In other words, when you are saved, you go from being sinner in the eyes of God to being a saint in the eyes of God. Now, it would be very helpful if more of us lived like saints instead of sinners. Maybe we should sin less and act more saintly. But nevertheless, your position before God is that you were a sinner lost and dying and going to hell, but He has transformed you and He has transformed you, transferred you, Colossians says, from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His of the Beloved. And, and you are a saint. Even the most ungodly churches, uh, church and found in the New Testament, in the book of Corinthians, Paul says they are called to be saints. He's basically saying, act like who you are. So saints are not some special designation given from some hierarchy in the church who considers your life long after you pass to see if there's evidence of a miracle or the hand of God or anything become a saint. Every person who has bowed the knee and listen, not that knows Christ says they know Christ, but Christ knows them. There is a difference. Is a saint. And in this bowl of incense, representing this bowl, an incense, of course, would be would be the sweet-smelling aroma or fragrance, and it would waft up with the smoke from the incense. And the picture is is that as the as this incense went up with the with the smoke, it was carrying the prayers of the saints into the presence of God. These wide-mouthed bowls were used in the tabernacle and in the temple. And you may want to simply write down 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 40, 2 Kings chapter 12, 1 Kings 28, 2 Kings chapter 4, Jeremiah 52. The idea is, is all throughout Scripture when it comes to the temple, when it comes to the tabernacle, the idea of these bowls filled with incense are there. Elsewhere, uh, in Scripture, the Bible associates the burning of incense with the prayers of the saints. Take a look at this one, if you would. Psalm 141, verse 2. Uh, you can just, just going to read one verse, and, um, and, and you can see how it's used in that way. Psalm 141, verse 2 said, May my prayer be counted as incense before you. You see that? As incense before you. <laughs> Um, the psalmist is saying that as the incense kind of comes up into your presence, um, may that may that represent my prayers. What the priest would do, and we see this if you want to turn to Luke chapter eight, I mean, excuse me, Luke chapter one. What the priest would do is the priest would stand outside the Holy of Holies and before entering into the Holy of Holies, they would burn incense and as the fragrance went up in the smoke, they would waft it into the Holy of Holies. In Luke chapter 1, verse 8, uh, we see um, a, a picture of this. 
where the Bible says, Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly due, his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, and this is speaking of Zacharias, according to the verse 9, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And notice what was happening in verse 9. While he was burning incense, verse 10 says, And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. So there we see in Luke chapter 1 in relation to the prophecy of John the Baptist um, uh, being born, the forerunner of Jesus. We see the, uh, uh, the angel of the Lord appear there at the altar of incense. So these, the incense in these bowls represents, Revelation says, the prayers of the believers through the ages that God prophesied and promised redemption of the earth might come. Taken together, the harps and the bowls indicate that all the prophets ever prophesied and all that God's children ever prayed for is finally to be fulfilled. That's the symbolism of what we see here. I think a question of application might be found worthy. Here in Revelation chapter 5, it says that the elders are holding a harp and golden bowls literally filling with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Can I, can I ask a, a pointed question? And my pointed question is this. If you were to consider your prayer life this week, how many of your prayers would be in the bowl of incense? You see what you see what I'm saying? If if you consider how much praying you did this week, how much praying you've done in the last three months, the last six months, how, how much praying has been there? How many of your prayers, the prayers of the saints, are included in the bowl of incense that's there? It's found particularly in this particular vision. I would say that most likely there's not one among us, this pastor included, that would say I prayed all I could pray this week and probably could even say I prayed all I should have prayed this week. I certainly believe, and, and you just need to know my heart in this, that I am, I, I, I am burdened about the prayer ministry of of our church. I'm not concerned that you're not praying and that we're not praying individually in those things, but there's an idea of coming together and corporate praying and coming together collectively. And if we were to take the the prayers of Doxa Church as a whole that we collectively and together offered up to God, I think all of us would see that this is certainly an area of ministry that we have an opportunity to grow in. 
as I thought about these bowls filling with incense, which are the, the prayers of the saints, oh, how I long for more of our prayers collectively together to go there and that we could grow and do more in that particular area. To kind of give you an idea of how this works, this is kind of the collectiveness of all the prayers. Look, in, look with me if you would in Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. <clears throat> the Bible says, and this is the breaking of the fifth seal, that underneath the altar are the souls of those who have been slain because of the Word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And so under the, under the altar are a group of people who have been martyred for the faith. They've been slain and they're asking this question of God saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will You refrain from judging and avenging our blood on all those who dwell upon the earth? In other words, they are asking the Lord, they are pleading with Him to let this action of judgment start. How long until you begin to pour out your wrath on those who have done this to us? They are saying that to the Lord. They are offering it by way of prayer. And I want you to see the answer to their prayer beginning to unfold in Revelation chapter 8. And look at what it says in verse 3. And another angel came and stood at the altar. Now look at this. Holding a golden censer, golden bowl with incense, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. In other words, the unleashing or the pouring out of the judgment. The answer to their prayer in Revelation chapter 6, God took the very incense in those bowls and the prayers of those saints and used that to bring down judgment. As I thought about that, I thought about all the prayers that I've prayed that seem to go unanswered. I think about all the burdens that I have that God doesn't seem to lift. I think about the prayers of the, of the justice for our nation, the prayers of battling racism, the prayers of all the things that we pray for, that, that we pray and pray and pray, and God seemingly does not answer. The prayers to save our children, the prayers to, right, to do all the things that He does. And beloved, I want you to understand this, and I want you to know this, I want you to capture this picture. Not one of those prayers prayed rightly. I didn't say prayed worthily. None of us are worthy to pray, but those prayers prayed, right, with pure means and pure motives, being in right standing with God. Those prayers are not wasted. Those prayers don't hit the ceiling and come back. You say, but they're not answered. They're not answered yet. Don't give up. Keep praying and sending those prayers up to God because there is a bowl, if you will. Picture this in your mind. A bowl collecting the prayers of the saints. 
And ultimately, one day, in a way that only God can do, He will use those prayers and answer those prayers and move bodily to fulfill every one of those prayers with His answer. Oh, beloved, if that's not, if that's not a deterrent to sin in our life, I don't know what is. Because it's only sin that inhibits our prayer from getting into the presence of God. That's why we must pursue holiness and we must confess daily our sin before God. We must not only be in right relationship with God, which we can never lose, but we must be in right fellowship with God. We have no unconfessed sin in our life because unconfessed sin in a believer's life is certainly what hinders the prayers of God's people. Psalm 66.18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, He will not hear me. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. I'm reminded of this verse time and time again. I quote it often. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot say, neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your sin has separated you from God in that He will not hear you. And I've already mentioned 1 Peter chapter 3. Husbands, your prayers are not going to be answered on behalf of your wife, on behalf of your family, on behalf of your children, on behalf of your career, on behalf of this church. If you are not dwelling with your wives in an understanding way, the Bible says that if you're not treating your wife the way Scripture says that you ought to be treating your wife, your prayers and my prayers in those times are hindered. They go unheard. They go unheeded. It is vitally important if we're going to participate in the ministry of prayer that we consider our own lives and the purity of our lives and that we give ourselves to pursuing holiness and purity and confessing regularly our sin that our fellowship with God may not be hindered. Here in Revelation chapter 5, we see a third thing. And it says, And they sang a new song. They sang a new song. I have said before on, on multiple occasions um, that uh, in Scripture, uh, the Bible says that angels say, not sing. Here we have the living creatures, which we've already said are angels, we have the 24 elders, which we've said are the church. We have to know in verse 9, who are they? Because if they are the living creatures and the elders, then I might have to go back and say I might be wrong that the angels do sing. I mean, after all, right? The Bible says, Hark the herald angels sing. Can you point me to that verse? Huh? Wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible say that? We've got to understand here what's going on, what's taking place, what's happening, who's involved, who's engaged here, who's the one singing, and who is the one, and what is the song that they're singing. And how do we unpack that? We, we unpack that in a, in a great way, but 
I think for the sake of time, we'll come back to it next week and uh, so that we can uh, spend uh, some time uh, dealing with that particular aspect and, uh, and looking at it. We're going to search Scripture. We're going to see what Scripture says. We have to consider things like Job 38, 7, um, when it says the uh, morning stars sang at creation. And we have to look at all the other places where it says that they say. Uh, I'll go ahead and tell you this. Uh, one commentator says that people sing. And uh, Eli, he says that people sing and angels rap. How about that? So uh, if that's the case, they probably rap a little different than the way the rap is going today. However, there is some tremendously theologically rich and solid rapping that's taking place today through hip-hop music. And I hope many of you are familiar uh, with those uh, ministries of those rappers. But we'll come back and deal with this next week. But I want to just I just want to pause here before I close in prayer. And I simply want to, want to ask you this. I want to ask you this. I'll ask you again. Do you have a song on your lips to sing to God? And do you have prayers? Do you have prayers that are waiting to answer? And maybe you've become discouraged and maybe you've wondered that if God has heard you. Maybe you've wondered if, if God, why God are you not answering? Why are you not delivering? Why are you not redeeming? Why are you not doing those things? I would say a couple of things that I would do if I were you is the first thing that I would do before I would ask God why He's not answering is the first place that I would begin with I would begin with the self-evaluation. The Bible says this, that we could ask the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, to search us and to try us and to see if there's any wicked way among us. And beloved, it may just be if you're struggling to feel like that you have an involved, active prayer life and you're struggling to feel that your prayers are going beyond the ceiling, maybe you become discouraged in the area of prayer and you, you honestly, before God, you don't spend much time praying at all. The first place that I would start would, would be there. I would say, number one, are you in an active, are you in a vital, life-giving relationship with God? Are you a child of God? Um, I'm going to go ahead and put this out there. You're free to disagree with me if you want to. You're free to be wrong. But I do not believe and I do not see examples in Scripture where God hears the prayers of lost people. Now, I've had lost people come and say, well, you know what? I prayed this and God answered. And I said, hey, God didn't answer your prayer. He answered the prayer of a Christian who prayed the same prayer that you prayed. Beloved, I believe that the prayer that God hears from lost people is a prayer of repentance and belief and trusting in God. And that's the prayer that He prays. That's the prayer that He receives. Again, you're free to disagree. I would ask you to search Scripture and to find that in Scripture and, and see. Um, look at those passages. Psalm 6.18, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Look at the other passages in the Scripture that relates to prayer and relationship with God and see what, see what you see. So I, first of all, check my relationship with God. Am I a child of God? Am I, am I part of the family of God? That's what gives you access to God, right? What gives you access to God is that you're part of the family of God. How did you become part of the family of God? You became a child of God. How did you become a child of God? You were redeemed by the Son of God. So those who are redeemed by the Son of God become child of God. Those who are children of God have access to God the Father in prayer. 
and other and promises and other things. The second thing that I would do is once I made sure that I was in a right relationship with God, is I would ensure that I was in right fellowship with God, that I had no unconfessed sin in my life, that I wasn't grieving the Spirit of God by the things that I do in our life, in my life. The way that I know, the way that I know that I'm in um, uh, right standing with God is that He hears and answers my, my prayer, right? The, re- the way that I know that the Spirit is not a power, the Spirit is a person, is because a power can't be grieved, but a person can. And by our actions, we can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And so we need the Scripture to help us to ensure that by the attitudes and by our actions and by the things that we, the sins of omission, the things that we haven't done that we should have done, like witnessing and praying and all of those things and sins of commission, the acts of wrong that we have done, all of those things will hinder us if they go unconfessed. But beloved, here's the good news. 1 John 1.9 is written to believers. If we, Christian, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if you don't think that, that your fellowship with God is ever broken because you never sin, beloved, I would ask you to read 1 John. Because it says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God who is faithful and just, to confess means homo legato, means to say the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin. He will forgive us and cleanse us, which means that we are renewed and restored and brought into right fellowship with God. And beloved, I would say if you examine your life and you're in right relationship with God, you're in right fellowship with God, and you're praying and God is not answering, then I would just simply say don't stop praying because it's not that He hasn't answered. He hasn't answered yet. I think we have to be willing for God to say yes. I think we have to be willing for God to say no. And I think we have to be willing for God to say not yet. Not yet. And we have to be satisfied and content with the answers that God gives us. So I hope together that we would continue individually and as a family and collectively as a church offer these prayers up to God that those bowls of incense, golden bowls of incense, if you will, would be filling with our prayers and the prayers of God's people. Let's stand for prayer. I love it as, as always. I always hang around at the end of the service. And if you're struggling in this area, if you're struggling with your relationship with God, then I want to see you after this service. And Jason's available as well. And uh, others too who would be more than willing to take God's Word and to pray with you and to come for you. Don't be in a hurry to, to rush right out. Let's spend this time doing business with God. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word and thank You for loving us. Thank You for bringing clarity and bringing focus. God, thank You for moving on our hearts today in the area of prayer. Father, I pray that where there's sin and conviction, that, Father, we would confess it and, and we would come out from underneath it. That You would restore our, our fellowship with You. That our prayers may not be hindered. I pray, Father, that, that, that You would just continue to lead us in this particular area to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
continue to see the Lord Jesus high and lifted up and seated upon the throne and working all things together for our good and for His glory. And Father, may we grow in our trustworthiness of who He is and may we join with the living creatures and may we join with the elders in heaven who are praying time and time uh, and time again uh, prayers of worship and joy and adoration to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And may the ring of our amens be joined with the ring of the amens of the living creatures and the elders who fell down and worshiped Him. For God, all of life is to be a life of worship. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.